It gives me great pleasure to introduce a very special edition of our podcast where we delve into the life and times of the main man behind the CSM business. In fact, I can't quite believe it's taken so long to get him to appear on the show, but we're delighted he's able to join us today. Born in the UK, he moved to South Africa at an early age, and his first career was as a professional cricketer. He played first-class cricket for Transvaal before moving to England in 1993 to play for Derbyshire, where he made a name for himself as a handy off-spinner who could also bat a bit. When his cricket career came to an end, he put his commercial degree to good use, setting up the sponsorship agency Frontiers Group in 2000 alongside his brother Kevin. And it's fair to say, neither have looked back since. Taking Frontier Group into essentially and essentially into what is now a unified CSM, he's been at the forefront of the journey the whole way through. Welcome to the podcast, my colleague, my friend and group CEO of CSM, Matt Vandro. Matt, welcome. Thank you, Seb, and uh, very kind words that you said there. Appreciate that. Why has it taken us so long to get you on this podcast series? Uh, I'm, I'm, I t- you know me, Seb, I, t- I tend to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, uh, I don't like to be out there, I guess is the way I put it. I just sort of tend to, you know, like to be part of, part of the, C- you know, the biggest sort of CSM business. And, the, you know, there's a whole lot of people who, uh, who are delivering terrific work for us as, a, as an agency. So I guess uh, I prefer being in the background a little bit. Well, that's a characteristically modest start to the podcast, Matt, but I'm going, I'm going to press you on a few, uh, a few of your achievements because they've actually been lustrous and I thought we've got plenty to cover today, so I'm going to start from the beginning. Uh, to those who know you, you're a proud South African, you've got the accent to, to show for it, but you were actually born in England. At what age uh, and what prompted the family to move there? Uh, that's the first question, and I'm going to have a quick supplementary, if I may, at this moment. Do you consider yourself to be a South African and very much at home in South Africa? Um, so, well, the, 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 in answer to your first question, Seb, so my, my, my folks lived here in the, in the swinging 60s, I guess, and uh, you know, they, they decided, well, my mom got a bit homesick, so they, they, I was born in Epsom, but uh, you know, when I was one, my folks, or my mom in particular, wanted to go back to South Africa. She was homesick. So they hopped on, they went down to Southampton and hopped on a boat, because that's what you did in those days, and they sailed all the way around. They sailed down to, to South Africa. and then uh, That must have been about a six-week journey. I, I, I was too young to, to, to... I've seen some silly photos of, uh, of New Year's parties with me dressed up in, in funny clothes. Um, but... You know, and and then I, you know, I pretty much spent my my whole youth in South Africa, uh, all of my schooling, uh, went to university in South Africa. So, and and the question about whether do I regard myself as a South African? Um, I would say probably. I, I always say, someone says to me, "How do you? How, what would you? What would you? What would you use as a as a perfect measure?" And I, I think if South Africa were playing rugby against England, I would always support South Africa. I'm a, I'm a madly passionate South African rugby fan. So I'd say, you know, there's certainly, you know, big South African roots that, that still exist for me. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of the country that I've come from. And having said that, I've now been living in England for, you know, for, for longer than I lived in South Africa. I've got a 17-year-old and a 20-year-old who, uh, who you know, are, are born here and raised here and, you know, still, still have a, a passion for South Africa. But they would certainly regard themselves as English and rightly so. So I think it's, you know, I, I'm, I'm a sort of dual citizen, I would say, Seb, is probably the best way of describing it. But when it comes to a game of rugby, I will always support South Africa. I, I think we can, certainly, uh, we can certainly forgive you for that. My mother is Indian, 
And I'm afraid I have one weakness and that's Indian cricket. I'll support England for everything other than uh, in a cricketing test. Um, I'd, I'd like to actually probe the, the South African provenance a little bit because you grew up in, uh, in South Africa, you know, I could say in interesting times, but um, they really were because it was apartheid South Africa. Uh, and perhaps your childhood was in the most militant, possibly the most aggressive period of it. Uh, and I know you lived the experience of apartheid. Um, I guess it would have been radically different to many of your fellow countrymen and women, but are you comfortable? I wonder if you could share your recollections of life during that era and, and what impact it went on to have on the rest of your life. Because I know a lot of, uh, a lot of South Africans who have very interesting observations uh, around that period. I think I mean it's it, and it's it's interesting because you sort of sit down um, fifty two now and you sit back and you you do you do think about those those days. I mean, I, you know I, I um I'm actually quite embarrassed in a, in a way. And that's a strange word to use, but I, you know I sort of grew up in this white bliss, if if you know if if for want of a better word, you know, and 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 knew no better. You know the the broadcasters in South Africa, all, all the sort of newspapers were government controlled. So you know it 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 was just what you 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 knew. And uh, you know, so I grew up in a in a you know very nice suburb, but it was a suburb where you know there were only whites. And and uh, each family around there, we had, we had a maid called Trifina, who we were a very liberal family. She you know she we we absolutely embraced her as part of our family. But I could never quite work out why. Trifina's kids, we would only ever see them at, at, at Christmas. They would, you know, they'd come up. And the, the reason was that, you know, you, you, in those days, you were allowed to have a domestic helper and they could live on your property, but no one else was allowed to live there. They had to go back to, you know, the, the townships. Um, you know, so, you, I, I mean, I, I still sit back and at primary school, we, we would go in at eight o'clock in, in the morning before school and we'd go into the school hall and everyone would have to stand up and we would collectively sing the national anthem, you know, the old South African national anthem, and with, with the, you know, with the, the, the flag getting raised. I mean, that was what we did every single day, you know. So, so this is sort of gives you a notion of the, the sort of, um, you know, the brainwashing that was going on for, for sort of young kids growing up, that this was just normal. And it was only when, I'd say, sort of getting to the back end of my, my school career, my high school career, um, and when I, when I, actually when I went to Wits University, which Wits University, a very liberal university, where, you know, the students would, would, uh, would march on a regular basis. Uh, you know, there would be, you know, police would be called onto campus with shambox, which are the sort of, the sort of bullwhip that, that they used to use. And there was, there was a huge amount of, you know, of, of fighting and, uh, and it was, uh, you know, it was, and it was there and then really that as a, sort of a, a, a in my, my, my sort of late teens that I, you know, started to appreciate just what, uh, you know, how unjust the South African society was. Um, so you sort of sit back and, and for me, I'm like, I'm embarrassed that it took me as long as it did to, you know, to, to, to realize. And I think it shaped, I would say, the person I am today. I think I, I try to be very fair, very understanding. Um, <clears throat> I, I, I will always say to my, my son, who's, who, who's incredibly woke that, you know, he, he doesn't see color, which I think is, is, is an awesome attribute. And um, <clears throat> sorry, I'm getting a bit torn up here, actually, because, uh, you know, that, that, that whole sort of South African experience absolutely shaped who I am. I think for us as a, as a business, 
and as an industry, you know, is it, it is all about making sure that, you know, that that we become incredibly diverse, that we become incredibly fair, and that you know we absolutely, you know, need to you know encourage diversity, and inclusion in in all forms. Um, so I think that's what I could talk about my 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 youth in South Africa a lot, Seb. But I think it it certainly. Um, has made me, I hope, a, a much fairer and more thoughtful person, I think, in, in dealing with anyone. Well, M- Matt, if you don't mind me saying, I, I can attest to that because I have the privilege of sitting in board meetings with you. I know your personal commitment to the work that we're doing a- around DNI, and I'm, I can now, from that answer, because you and I have actually never really discussed that, but from that answer, I can absolutely understand now why you are so passionate about to choreographing an organization that looks to the rest of the world like the world we live in and i i i salute you for that and i mean it's an interesting journey that we've undertaken within csm because there's clearly a a great deal more more work to be done and i guess from your time and i'm jumping a little bit here but from your time in sports marketing you will have noticed a massive difference from when you first set out 20 odd years ago to what is now expected in an organisation today? Absolutely, and you know, and, and I think you know, CSM uh, as one of the you know one one of the big global agencies out there has you know has a responsibility to the industry to to help shape and and uh, you know and, and change the direction of travel in terms of diversity and inclusion. I think it's you know you know, and I know you you chair that council for us, Seb, and and. I'm very, very excited, you know, that we've made that commitment to, you know, to bring on a, a global head of DNI who, you know, who's going to help CSM become, you know, far more effective and better in in, in that sort of space. And I, you know, I would say to, you know, colleagues in in you know other global sports marketing and entertainment businesses that you know we we need to be, you know, we need to be agents for change. We need to we need to shift the dial on this industry. I mean, our, you know, the 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 UK marketplace in particular, I think, does not have enough BIPOC. Or quality BIPOC candidates working working in this industry, and, and and we need to change it from from the bottom up, and also whether it means going and finding talented people in different industries and bringing them into into our industry. I think that's a commitment we all need to make. I think it's often overlooked, isn't it, that you know, we're in a, a, a in a sports marketing place, and sport is you know as very popularly espouse the, the the thoughts around marginal gains but I think the one thing that we all tend to forget is organizations that are diverse and inclusive are going to be 15 percent more profitable than those that aren't and that in is, is is a simple metric you know that that I'm sure all companies are beginning to recognize now let, let me jump back to I'm going to jump back to your cricketing career because uh, that interests me because I've all you know I've spoken to a lot of people on these podcasts who have made the transition uh, from sport into what I would describe uh, as the afterlife um and I'm sure many people know this that uh, once you graduated from university your first career was uh, as a professional cricketer had you always wanted to play cricket or were there other sports that sort of tugged you uh, and why cricket um I mean, from from an early age, Seb. I mean, my my dad was a pretty decent cricketer. Uh, he played a few first class games, not 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 a a huge amount, but I I literally grew up on the side of a cricket pitch, with a with an old sawn down cricket bat that my dad had, and I was 
Absolutely. I can say, I mean, I was absolutely obsessed with cricket. I mean, I, I uh, you know, I don't think my, my parents would have got me to go to school if I didn't know that uh, school finished at two and then there would be cricket practice or a cricket match in the afternoon. So my passion for cricket certainly, you know, as a youngster was, uh, was, was huge. You know, it was, um, and I, you know, I got, it, it was interesting, uh, you know, so I, I, I went to university, was doing my degree and sort of um, started playing a few first class games for, for Transvaal. And then I went down to uh, to Natal to Durban, and we played against Natal. And I, I, I was sort of had a reasonable game, and you know the, this groundsman came sidling up to me, and you know he said, uh, "Hi, I'm," you know I was wondering why the groundsman was coming for a chat, and he said, "I'm I'm, I'm Phil Russell. I'm you know this is my winter job. I'm actually the coach of Derbyshire." You know, I saw you, you know, I was reading in the match day program that you were born in, in the UK. Is that right? And I said, yeah. So he said, oh, well, I, you know, I want to offer you a contract to come and play county cricket. Um, so it was, you know, I had a year to go to university. So I said to him, look, I want to finish my degree. And, you know, if, if the offer's still there in a year's time, yeah, absolutely. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll give it some consideration. And he phoned me, you know, phoned me a year later and said, uh, you know, still keen for you to come. Would you, would you come out and play? And I had a long chat with my dad and we debated it long hard. Um, he, he was probably more with, uh, well, you know, you should go and get a proper job and that, that type of scenario. But for me, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be that guy who was my age now, 52, who, who, you know, who was going, I could have, should have, would have type scenario. I just wanted to know, you know, I wanted to play cricket to the best of my ability and know that I'd given, you know, that I'd, I'd given all to 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 the little talent that I had in that that sort of uh, that that sort of area, so I decided I bit the bullet. I, I originally signed a, a, a one year or two year agreement with Derbyshire. I think it was two years, and you know that became six or seven. And I loved it. You know what I mean? I was for me, I can sort of sit back and go. I was a you know decent first class county cricketer. I was never quite good enough to play international, but that's fine. I, you know I can you know I don't I don't sit in a, as a fifty two year old gang. You know, oh, I would have played international cricket on, and you know that type of scenario. So I, I loved it, and I, the whole sort of experience of, um, you know, living in 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 a in a, a change room day in day out with with twelve colleagues, you know, and and um, and and I think I learned so much more having done. You know, I look at my university career, and then I look at my six seven years at Derbyshire. I learned so much more playing professional cricket. It taught me a lot about myself. It taught me a lot about. You know how you how you deal with success and failure in equal measures, um, which I think is probably certainly helped me in terms of you know the next step steps around around uh, a career in sport, um, and uh, you know it was it was a wonderful experience. I loved it. How did you? <laughs> there were many adjustments you must have made, but <laughs> what about the weather? <laughs> oh yeah, no, no, the weather was. <laughs> was terrible. I remember playing. Uh, well, you, you, you'll know because you're from Sheffield. But well, we played, Dar- that, you, you were playing in my backyard because Derbyshire was where Correct. they all so like- Dar- Derbyshire, Yorkshire. I remember the first game of the season up in up in Sheffield, and they they literally scooped snow from from the pitch, and and so that everything outside the boundary had snow on it. And I was playing in long johns, uh, like ski outfit, my tracksuit, and then my whites. And then trying to bowl off spin uh, where you could hardly hold hold the ball. I mean, it was, yeah. So so coming from Africa and playing cricket in the UK, certainly in that that sort of early April time was uh, was quite an experience. How, how do you reflect on your career now? I mean, you made the interesting point, and I think many people that have been privileged to have played sport at well at any level, but particularly at a high level, draw all sorts of um, draw all sorts of experiences and take them into their 
you know, in, into the afterlife, in your case, uh, into the commercial world. How do you reflect on that period now and how do you place it in what you went on to do? <laughs> my, my, my wife probably describes it best. Seb. She, you know, she, she says, when I die, I want to come back as you, basically, because, uh, you know, I, I, I basically my 20s were spent playing cricket, something that I was incredibly passionate about. So, you know, it was something that I was, I just loved. Do you, do you know what I mean? So I so, sort of, I look back on it uh, with incredible fondness. You know, do you know what I mean, Seb? It was, uh, you know, when I, when I turned 30 and, you know, it was the right time then to 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 get a proper job for, for want of a better expression. Uh, cr- cricket, certainly at county level, is not a particularly well-paid uh, job. So, you know, but, but it was, there were no regrets. Do you know what I mean? It was almost like, this has been fantastic. I've loved every moment of it. You know, Derbyshire won the Benson and Hedges, the last trophy they won in my first season in '93. Um, so, so it, 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 there's, there's just terrific memories and and, uh, and and some good friends that have remained. I mean, you, I'm sure you you'll have the same sort of experience. But uh, you know, the Devon Malcolms, uh, the Tim O'Gormans, these people that I I played with who who, who remain you know really good friends of mine today. A, a couple of weeks ago, you and I sat having lunch uh, in the break. Uh, for our um, strategic away day, we were actually sitting at the Oval. And I can't remember why the conversation came up. And I don't actually think it was introduced by either of us. But we got on to the discussion as, as what is the motive, great motivator in sport? Is it the enjoyment of winning or the fear of losing? Where was that balance for you? I think it's always been, and that was why I asked you, I call it the fear of failure. It's always... It's always been nagging at you know at, at at me, and I've I've always wondered you know if you change you know is that the driver or you know is it, it for me it definitely is a little bit sad, and it's been there you know all the way through my 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 business career, and it's it's one of those things that I think helps drive me forward is is you know I'm just honest about it I, I you know it it it's always terrified me that I'd, I I would I would fail at whatever I I sort of took on. Um, which sounds like a really negative mindset, but I know I'm not a negative person. I'm a pretty optimistic person and a full, you know, quite a quite a forward thinking person. But you know, for me, it's always it's always just been been you know on that shoulder a little bit. You know that uh, you know you've got to work harder because if you don't work harder, you know you, you're going to fail or you won't succeed in that. So it's it's yeah, it's definitely been a driver for me. I've tried to sort of turn it into into a positive. I think. Interestingly, I mean, we, we, we'll come on to your business career in a few moments, but, you know, you, we alluded to it, you alluded to it a few moments ago about the dramatic changes you've witnessed in the, in the sports marketing industry in the last 20 years. But you must have witnessed some massive changes from when you started playing the game to, to where it is now. I mean, the one day game now rules the roost. Um, the five days is important. You know, we're still, we're in an England Australia Test match uh, series. Um, there's even now talk about an Olympic berth uh, for the cricket in 2028. It was in the Olympics up until uh, 1924 uh, in Paris. Does the future of cricket really excite you? And where do you think the balance between the short form and uh, and the red ball game now sits? I mean, Sam, you know, I, th- I think there's uh, there's place for both formats. You know, I, you know. So for me, I'm I'm a purist. I, you know, nothing gives me more pleasure than seeing a terrific five day Test match. I think, you know, you've just got to look back at that, you know, that that uh, Ashes series in in two thousand and nine, and I don't, you know, I don't think there's 
you know, I don't think there's been a... Um, I thought you were going to refer to 81, but that's probably more my vintage. Exactly, or 81 or something like that. But when, when, you, when you get, you, you know, when you have a series that, that is so incredibly close, you know, that, uh, you know, that uh, is fought tooth and nail. And even if a game ends in a draw, this is my, you know, the Ameri- our Ameri- American colleagues can never understand it. What, you play for five days and, and there's no results? That's crazy. How can that be entertaining? But so for me, you know, test cricket, I, I love it. I mean, that, that's... And then they try and explain baseball to you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but then, you know, cricket did the right thing. I mean, they, they, they took a look. I remember the ECB at the, at the time going, you know, we, our fans are, are getting older. We're not attracting a, a younger audience. Um, we're not getting much interest from, from a female audience. And so that is actually how T20 came about. I mean, you know, and, and T20 has been uh, a phenomenal success. You've only got to look at, uh, you know, IPL and... Uh, and and, uh, and and how lucrative it is for players now. So if you know if you get a decent IPL contract, that that could be the making of a you know of of a cricketer financially, which I think is is terrific. And then the hundred, which is something we've been heavily involved in with you know with the ECB across all areas, so both commercial and and our live business, delivering all the sort of production work around it, a lot of activation with some of those, those partners. It's been amazing, and I, you know, the, the, if I if I look back on on, on the hundred, the, the thing I've absolutely loved is how it's brought uh, female cricket to 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 the forefront. I think what the hundred has done for 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 the female game is 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 fantastic, and and you know, I've got to say, I um, I watched quite a few of the you know the, the female matches, and they they were terrific. I mean, there's some bloody talented female cricketers coming through the ranks for England, uh, you know, which is exciting. Do you think more needs to be done though to maintain the primacy of the of the red ball game? Is there a risk we might just get this slightly out of kilter? Um, you know, it's it's uh, look. I think what, what's been what's been terrific, I think, is them trying to change the format so that you actually do have a test world champ, yeah, world champion. And actually, the 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 New Zealand India game was was pretty entertaining. So I think they've tried to RCC have tried to change the format to. To make uh, you know Test cricket me- more meaningful, I guess, because it's obviously Ashes is always meaningful, and there, you know there's certain clashes or rivalries that you know that are all- always meaningful. But how do you how do you crown it? You know, like New Zealand, uh, you know the world world champions of, of Test cricket, which is you know which is fantastic to see. Um, I, I think there's I, I still think there's a you know there, there's a place for it. I think the fact that you know if you if you went and spoke to any cricketer, take a Virat Ver- Kohli for example. He knows his legacy is is how he performed in, in in Test cricket, you know Sachin Tendulkar. He knows his legacy. So despite the fact that they were are magnificent uh, one day players or, or T Twenty players, it's incredibly important to them that uh, you know that they will be judged on 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 the record that they leave behind in in five day in five day Test cricket, and and that will carry on. I don't think that's going to change. This I have to ask you this question, and I've asked you know I've asked. Of all the competitors that have been on here uh, in their own sports, who's the best player you've played with and the best player you've played against? And, and actually, I'll add a third to that. The best player that you haven't played with or against, but that you've witnessed. OK, so best player I played against, uh, no question, was, was Brian Lara. Uh, and I had the pleasure of... of uh, he, he scored nine hundreds in a row playing for Warwickshire, including uh, that uh, 501 that he scored against Durham. And we were about number eight on the on the list, um, and we played at Chesterfield, which is Derbyshire's sort of second ground at, at the Queen's Oval there. And we prepared an absolute green mamba. We had Devon Malcolm, Dominic Cork, Philip De Freitas, uh, you know, and 
Uh, I can't remember who opened the batting for us. It was Roger Twos and Andy Moles, I think. And they, you know, the, the two of them batted for about half an hour, struggled terribly. Uh, and then one of them got out and, and Brian walked in at number three. And it was like uh, he was playing on a, on a feather bed uh, in, in the back of uh, you know, Trinidad and Tobago, some of those type of lines. He absolutely smashed the bowling everywhere. And then we sort of I remember Kim Barnett going to me, well, I think he's trying to get 100 before lunch in an, in an hour and 15 minutes. So he said, I think, why don't you come on and bowl? So, no, it was just not a, a, a wicket for a spin bowler to bowl. It was green top. So come, why don't you come and bowl a couple of overs and we'll see if we can get him caught on the boundary, basically. That was, that was the notion. And I think I bowled six overs for 48 or something like that. Said, I didn't bowl badly. And Kev was actually down from university watching the game. And he was walking around the boundary saying to me, you know, well, you need to change it. I was saying to him, Kev, it doesn't matter where I bowl. He's just plonking it wherever he wants to. It was... So that that stuck with me. I mean, it was the most phenomenal innings, and I I went out and had dinner with him that evening actually, and he said to me, "Don't don't worry, pal. I've been doing that to everybody." It was like one of those like bad, you know, <laughs> tap on the back, well tried type type scenario. But he he was he was a phenomenal phenomenal cricketer. Uh, said unbelievable. And the player you were played with played with. Um, there, I mean, there were a few, there were a few. I played with uh, Daryl Cullinan, who I thought was an incredibly talented cricketer. Uh, for for Transvaal, probably didn't get you know the recognition you know just in terms of pure talent he was he was a phenomenal batsman, um you know I look at uh, I think Devon on his day or Philip De Freitas on their day were you know were were world class bowlers, um gee Dean Jones I, I had two years with Dean you know he was fantastic and Mohammad Azraddin just a phenomenal talent uh you know as a batter so there were plenty I played with, um and then. Current crop, I mean, I, you know, I, I think A.B. de Villiers is just different league, to be honest. I, you know, I think he's, you know, very sad for South African cricket that he hasn't played, you know, more international cricket for them. But uh, I think he's um, phenomenal. Let's move on to the business career now, because in a way, there are still crossovers with cricket, which I'll, I'll pick up on. But post cricket, I think it's fair to say you've, you, you, well, it is fair to say you've had a remarkable business journey. Uh, it started with the Frontier Group and you set that up with your brother, Kevin, who is very familiar to us all uh, at CSM. And that was created in 2000. I, I'm fascinated here because I love the fa- I love family dynamics. My, my father was my coach and, you know, that I can sort of there are some reader crosses here. Um, whose idea was it? Uh, and was there any nervousness? Uh, about going into business uh, with your brother. Now, we know Kevin, but I- I'm interested in your take on that. Because, you know, the-, the great strengths, the great strengths of family businesses can sometimes often lead to their weaknesses as well. So I think, look, I, the sort of short version is that uh, I was working for a company called Sports and Outdoor Media. It was my first job post-cricket. That business was backed by a venture capitalist called John Beckwith or Sir John Beckwith. And uh, the, the business got sold and, and uh, John, John approached me and said, uh, you know, he wants to go again. He wants to put some more money in. You know, would I be interested in, in, in setting up uh, a business? And I, th- you know, I thought at the time, um, Kevin and I had always spoken about at some stage we were trying to do something together. So I said to John, look, I'd be keen, but, uh, you know, I want you to meet my brother because if I do do it, we're going to do it together. So, so that was... That was how it sort of came about. And, and it was quite interesting. John said, fine, I'll, I'll play golf with you guys. 
Uh, but we played on separate weekends. He didn't want to play with us together. And, and there's a bit of background because John actually used to work with his brother, Peter, and they had a pretty successful business together. And then they had a big fallout. So I think he just wanted to try and sense the, the sort of dynamic. But And that was a start, really. And then we came up with a business plan and uh, you know, I mean, presented it to John. What came out of Frontiers as a business it had absolutely nothing to do with the business plan. It's quite funny, actually, you know, on, on reflection. The business plan was was nothing like the business that came out the back end, I guess is what I'd say. Um, but, you know, we, as, as brothers and actually as a family, and now Mike works in the business as well, uh, you know, obviously. But for, for me and Kev, it was, um, it was, it was exciting. You know, it was, it was, uh, it was just an opportunity, uh, almost a you know, risk-free opportunity in a way to, to, to have a go and, and see what, what we could create and, and build. Uh, there was a lot of nervousness. I remember we we sat in the bottom of John's office. Uh, he gave us like a basement uh, to to. There was two of us with two desks looking at each other, going, "Oh crikey, what do we do now?" Type scenario. So it was, you know, it was it was a little bit stressful in those uh, in the, those early days. But um, we've always worked really well together. We and you know my brother. He's quite feisty and he's quite. Uh, Quite forthcoming and, and opinionated, but but in a, in a, in a good way, Seb. You know, it's, it's, no, it's he is he's challenging. He's challenging, and and you know, if he doesn't agree with something, he will say he will he will tell you. And and we've had uh, certainly in the early days, we had some proper stand up rows, disagreements type type scenario. But the one thing about uh, the family dynamic, in my opinion, is you know, is that whole sort of notion that that sort of blood is thicker than water. So, you know, the we we would argue. The next day we would come in and it's it's forgotten. Do you know what I mean? You move on. We you know we've had a robust discussion. We eventually agree on the right way forward and and we get on with things. Um, and uh, you know I'd say we've had that type of relationship uh, our whole life. It's 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 we've worked very well together. You're probably going to tell me that the rest of the journey was absolutely with pinpoint accuracy uh, plotted. I, I, I'm guessing most people that say that you know either say it because they feel they need to. But I'm interested because Frontiers was then sold to Essentially. You took a lead role uh, in Essentially. And then, of course, Essentially formally became part of of CSM. Uh, You then took the reins at CSM. Um, A seamless journey. Uh, Was it one that you plotted or was it sort of slightly happenstance as well? Because my instinct is that you know, these things are not an exact science. No, no. I mean, I'm, I'm not a, a plotter. So I'm, I'm quite fatalistic, actually. I think, you know, you, you talked about the off chance of meeting the Derbyshire coach at a cricket game in, in, in Durban, and that ends up me being in, in, in this country. So I'm, I'm, I'm certainly a little bit fatalistic in terms of how things work out sometimes. But, you know, Frontiers was a great journey. You know, we... we we got lucky. You always got to, You know, you always need that big break. And 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 Lord's Cricket Ground was our was our big break. And we you know we we won all the commercial rights there as a, a team of three. Nick Hoyle, who used to be a colleague, was 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 with us in that organisation then. But we were tiny, and and Lords decided to take a chance on us because they knew that they would be mean everything to us as a business, and and uh, you know that we would throw everything we could at to to help them succeed and. You know that that really became the starting point for us building our our, our relationships in cricket, which we you know we can, which carry on today, and we built that business up. Uh, got to know Bart Campbell really well, who had a business called Global Sports Management, which was more rugby talent management, uh, a little bit of cricket management, and we were working in cricket and rugby, but on the commercial side. So those two businesses effectively came together to to create essentially. 
which you know we we worked hard to build up over a couple of years, and then uh, you know sold sold essentially into um, into into Chime and, and into Chime Communicate. I think we were second. I think Fast Track were first agency, and then essentially was the sort of second agency, you know, into the mix. And uh, you know, given the opportunity of of running that essentially business, uh, you know, as Bart decided to go into pastures new, uh, and you know that was great. We we carried on building that that agency. Hired some terrific people, the Sarah Dawsons of this world, you know, Josh Stockhausens, uh, and so on. And then the opportunity came, uh, I guess, when Providence acquired, um, you know, acquired Chime. You know, there was a notion that CSM was fourteen agencies, sort of not really operating in uh, as a cohesive global agency, for want of a better word, Seb. So. You know, I guess at that time, I'll be honest. I think Kevin and I had thought about our earnouts done. It might be time to, you know, to to look at doing something new. But then, when the Providence acquisition came, and and you know, Andrew Tisdale and Chris Sathaswell at the time were saying, right, it's probably the right time to try and create a proper one global agency. You know, that became a, an exciting challenge. And you know, when I was asked to take that on, I was, uh, you know, I was delighted. Actually, it, was, it 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 was interesting. You know, to to to, to try and make that all work. That must have felt a bit like herding goldfish at, at one point because you talked about Fast Track being the first in and then, of course, essentially. But by the time that you came to, to take the helm, there were, I think there were, I think arguably about 14 different businesses. Yeah. Uh, that, was, that was quite a challenge, being able to create one unified brand where everybody yeah. felt they had skin in the game and that there was a sort of, there was a mutually, you know, shared values journey. Yeah, uh, a, a huge challenge. But I mean, said you know, the, you can only achieve these things with, uh, you know, with with great leadership team teams and great people and, and and collaborative people. And and that's the one thing that 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 we had, you know, whether it was a John Francis at at Icon at the time. Remember having that sort of conversation, you know, you know with 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 Alistair or, or Jim Glover, who's been in the business for for a for a long, you know for for a long long time. A lot of the you know the founders of businesses still sit within CSM today. But I think everyone knew that the time was right to, you know, if we were going to, we needed to take that next step. You know, it was it, it was a nonsense. I remember sitting in, in pitches where we would be, right, okay, and this is CSM and we are, oh, and this Fast Track and they do that and essentially do that and actually so, sometimes they do similar things and, oh, this is Icon. And no one could understand. I, I remember, vaguely remember there was a big visa pitch, which we got quite, quite close to winning. Um but one of the pieces of feedback... That, I remember that. I think I was on that pitch. <laughs> and, and, and one of the pieces of feedback that came afterwards when we didn't get it, I think they ended up going with IMG, was, well, we couldn't quite understand your business. You know, you know there seemed to be a lot of disparate parts to it. So, you know, we wanted to, we wanted to define CSM by capability as opposed to agency. That was, that was the sort of mindset, okay? So, you know, we, we, we work in, in three you know, areas of capability, whether it's brands, whether it's uh, rights and properties, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's live. And actually, you know, I think it's now, you're right, it has been a hell of a journey, but you're sort of five years down the line from when we started that process. Um, And to see how brilliantly our our business now works, you know, both from a geographic perspective, this whole sort of notion for me, you know, we we always say it is actually, you want to put the best team on the pitch, to, to win a piece of business and you want to put the best team on the pitch to service a piece of business and geography shouldn't be a limiter. You know, so, so it, you know, if, if it requires two from our New York office, 
one from our Abu Dhabi office, one from our Hong Kong office, and, and, and two from London to, to, to give us the best chance of winning and, and delivering, then that's what we've got to do. And, and it, it's so great to see that, uh, that happening now. Okay, a, a, a two-parter as a question here. You cut your teeth in the marketplace, you know, roughly uh, in 2000. You've seen invention and evolution along the way. You're sitting here, you know, some 20 years later. Tell me what you've witnessed in that time and then give me a, a quick overview of where you see, for instance, our sector in 2025. Mm. Okay, no, that's a good question. I think, look, yeah. it's, it's moved on tremendously from the good old days of a, a chairman or chief executive loved a particular sport. So you could go and sit down with him and uh, convince them to sponsor something and, and get a deal done. And there was a little bit of, uh, you know, branding and tickets and hospitality and everyone is happy. I mean, it's the, our industry has completely matured and evolved, Seb. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, I would say, whereas we were seen as a nice add-on to, in, in 2000, now, you know, the whole sort of sports marketing ethos is, is, is absolutely core part of communication process for any, you know, big organization or brand. I mean, you just got to look at, you know, the work we do with Unilever, for example. We're abs- you know, it's absolutely core to to helping them achieve their, their, their sort of KPIs. So it's, it's, ours is an industry that's really taken seriously now, I think, in, in, in a way, is, is certainly one of the observations I make. Uh, digital, that's obviously completely changed and you know, dr- driven everything. I mean, whether it's you know, the good old days of, okay, right, um, I'm going to tune in to BBC and watch, watch a game of cricket or analog t- television, that, you know, that, that, those days are gone. I mean, it's... The way people consume sport these days, Seb, and you'll you'll know this probably sitting with uh, you know with your kids. I know sitting with my kids. I watch a West Ham play on on Sky, and they've got two other screens on the go. You know, in terms of uh, of how they enjoy and and, and watch and, and interact around that. So you know the, the you know the move of of the, you know the likes of the YouTube's, the Instagrams, the you know the whole drive in terms of social media has completely changed our our landscapes. It's fascinating. You and I have a mutual friend who actually used to be at, at, at CSM. His son now plays very serious uh, youth football, scored the winning goal against uh, a well-known North London club the other day. And before he'd actually made the journey home, uh, he had a 27 second clip of his winning goal uh, on his Instagram and already about 40 different conversations and other stories spreading from it. It's, yeah, this is it's it's the consumer way, and I think we're all getting used to either as rights holders or 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 brands of recognizing that uh, you know the world has changed, and actually r- rapidly so through COVID. I mean, interestingly, I spoke to Keith Pelly, the uh, you know a friend of both of ours who runs the European tour, who said he's become a completely different CEO through the last few years. Was there are things he yeah. now has to deal with that? He wouldn't have even thought about five years ago, and I guess you would agree with that. Absolutely, I think uh, you know, you know, Keith, Keith, and that's probably quite a good example actually, because I think you know, European Tour are quite a traditional organisation, Seb, in terms of the way they 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 approach things. And Keith's been very innovative. I mean, he's trying to create six hole golf events. You know, I think uh, you know he's he's been a great driver of disability, you know, disability golf. Uh, you know, starting to get those sort of tournaments up and running. So. You know, you have to you have to innovate. I mean, that, that's a good example again of, of the change in the last twenty years is looking at sports and how they've, you know, how they've looked to innovate. Whether it's, 
you know, it's three three on three basketball, or, or you know, whether it's the the you know how rugby sevens has evolved, or we talked about cricket, T twenty, the hundred. So this whole sort of notion of of sports having to take a look at you know how they how they adapt and 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 uh, and move at the times as well. I think that's been a really uh, significant change in you know in in the last sort of you know our last twenty years. And then you you know your next question was when we get to twenty twenty five. Yeah. What's what's happening there? And you know, I'm sort of sitting here, and you know, a lot of work's going into, you know, what what the metaverse and NFTs and and what that's going to mean for you know for us as a as an industry and a business. Because I do think there's going to be a scenario where, you know, I'll, I you know I'm a West Ham fan, so I I can't get down to the the stadium, but I've got my you know I, I I've got my virtual season ticket, and actually I'm going to sit next to my good friend. Uh, you know Richard Snell in Johannesburg, and the, the two of us are going to sit and watch the West Ham game together. You know, in the metaverse, and have a conversation about uh, you know how, how how brilliantly Antonio is playing, or you know, that type of scenario. So I think there's that's definitely coming. Um, no, no question about it. Um, so it's 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 very interesting, and it, you know it it means that as a as a business, we've got to make sure that uh, you know we 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 stay ahead of the curve. And, you know, and, and keep up to speed with uh, with all these changes. Where's the bat? I'm interested because you know, with one of the great uh, drivers in the last year or so has been, you know, sustainability. Uh, you know, we we all sit in pitches, depend, you know, uh, regardless of of which sort of hat we're sit, you know, that we're currently wearing. And you know, every pitch I've been involved in in the last you know, a few months, the first hour, you're being asked about your, your policy on DNI, human rights, sustainability, you know, how do you intend to service a, a, a contract without sending people, you know, every few minutes, eight time zones, uh, you know, on an airplane to, 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 to then fly back again. Uh, and this is a, this is, this is a massive shift. Where, where is the balance, do you think, in the business life of an organisation between growth uh, and the greater consideration about you know the you know Billy Bunter esque consumption of uh, of the planet. Yeah, look, I think it's uh, you know it 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 will. It's probably you know DNI has probably been more at the forefront in a way. Seb, I'd say you know certainly you know the whole Black Lives Matter movement in the states and and so on. So I think that's been a, a huge driver. But sustainability is not far behind. I you know I would say and you know there 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 is a sort of notion of. For me, I was thinking about it, and then we were talking a little bit about metaverse. You know, is there a scenario now where, you know, fans will, if 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 technology gets to a stage where that experience from you know in the metaverse is is so terrific, actually, you know, you you wouldn't be that bothered about hopping on an airplane to travel to Qatar to watch the you know the football world cup because actually you know sitting in a in a, in a metaverse or, or similar would give you such a terrific experience and and save you from hopping on an airplane and and, and you know and flying and, and destroying the planet so i think you know it'd be interesting to see how technology helps i think that's going to be incredibly important um you know the other side of it isn't you know is is there's definitely a lot of rights holders now who are looking at how they how they do things in a, in a more sustainable way. Formula E is always, I think, a great example. I mean, they've worked closely with our CSM Live business, you know, to, to you know, they pretty much said to them, right, any branding that you put up around any of our circuits, any of the city circuits, that we, we, we want that branding to be sustainable. We want to know that it's got to have a life after, you know, after you take it all down and that type of scenario. So that's been great for, 
a great challenge for our CSM Live business in terms of developing, uh, you know, sustainable products that they, they can then use, um, you know, not only across Formal E, but uh, with other, other rights holders and relationships that they have. But there is no question that um, uh, governing bodies and rights holders are going to be expected to behave, in my opinion, in a, uh, in a, in a, in a very thoughtful uh, and sustainable way. I'm I'm interested in in a way pulling the knitting together here because the business has you know the industry as a sector was so incredibly hard hit in the last couple of years. I mean I can't think of a sector well you know everything around hospitality of course but you know it it really was. I mean events came to a a, a standstill. The sector is getting back onto its feet, though, isn't it, Matt? It's beginning to start uh, punching again uh, with optimism. And I think, you know, uh, uh, across the sector, the numbers are looking a little more optimistic. Oh, so, like, I mean, I, you know, 2021 has been a, a phenomenal year for us as a business in terms of a bounce back. Um, and across all of our, our business units, because you're wondering, OK, is it going to take a... Uh, our live business a bit of time to get its feet back together. Like Luke's hospitality business, for example, are people still going to want to go and attend live sporting events? And uh, and and the answer is yes. And and uh, you know that the, the craving to 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 go to live sporting events is 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 huge. Um, the the appetite for for um, you know for for brands and companies to support the right properties uh, is is no, it's massive, Seb. I think. It, that was for me was uh, how long is it going to take for us to to get back to normality and reality is well, I'm sitting in my study and you're sitting in your study and uh, you know where Boris has asked us not to go into the office so you know COVID is probably I don't know it's going to be here next year and it, it probably lasts although I think you know less effective might be more contagious but less effective in terms of of of, of the virus but it's it's around but what's become abundantly apparent to me is actually that life goes on and and uh, you know and sport goes on and uh, and people want their sport and crave their sport and need their sport and entertainment um you know so uh, you know it, it, we've recovered quickly and and I think you know there're going to be a few bumps in the in, in the road as we as we head into 2022 but um no I think um I think and I'm touching wood and everything here, but I think our sector is in in a great place I think that's a great moment to actually leave it, Matt. Thank you. Some very thoughtful uh, reflections here. Uh, and if I may say so, the right man at the right time. No, you're too kind, Seb. And, and listen, uh, and, and thanks for all your support. It's, you know, I, I love every minute of working with you. You're a, you know, you're a terrific ally, a good friend, and, um, you know, and, and have made such a huge contribution to, to CSM as a business and continue to do so. So thank you. We'll recharge the batteries and I'll see you in January. Look forward to it. Have a nice Christmas. And you. Thank you. You've been listening to Extraordinary Tales in Extraordinary Times, brought to you by CSM 